0: Hello and welcome back to the Canyon Chasers podcast, what we have affectionately called the Breaking Zone. We have Dave, May, and Alex, and we have a super special guest, Dr. Matt Tolstoy. And uh, Dr. Matt Tolstoy, we met Dr. Matt at a at a Champ School, and. He is, what kind of doctor are you, Matt? Because the information, your Instagram is a treasure trove of really amazing information. And we were all like, we got it. We got to have you on the podcast. Everybody needs to hear what you have to say.
1: Oh, man. Dude. Well, I appreciate it. Um, in terms of what I do, you know, I'm an orthopedic rehab clinician. I'm out of New York. Uh, you know, I'm in private practice there. And so, you know, I help people with aches and pains, with performance. You know, I've been on staff at New York City Ballet. Um, you know, work with some people in professional sports and stuff like that. So, you know, we're trying to combine this approach for sure at the like high performance people, high performance level, but also, you know, the majority of the people that I see and that I love working with are people who are just, you know, everyday people trying to enjoy their life better, trying to get out of pain, trying to just be a little bit better every day and just be healthier. And so that's kind of where my practice sits. And, you know, I'm a writer myself. And so obviously I've taken great interest in helping out other riders who are having a hard time on the bike or maybe I've had a crash or something like that. But yeah, that's the overview of kind of where I'm coming from and what I do and, uh, how I love to blend these two worlds of,
0: you know, my professional life and also this big personal interest in riding. Well, we need to get to the most important question then first. What kind of bike do you ride? <laughs>
1: um, well, all right. So, uh, I ride a Multistrada 950 on the street, which I love. I just picked it up last year and I'm having a great time with that on the street. And on the track, I ride I ride the good old little R3, and I love the Best. R3 on the track. I just, I don't know. I love it. I love how much it teaches you um, in a weird way. I love how freaking hard it is. It's just like, oh, you blew that corner, and nothing's going to help you. And you just really knew that you blew the corner. So I love how you can't hide on a 300. That's that's kind of like my favorite part is that it really shows you. And so everybody's always asking me, like, when are you going to move up? When are you going to get, like, a 600? And you know it's always in my mind, but uh there's something there's something about the ruthlessness of the little bikes that just I don't know I love it. It's the
2: passing the bigger bikes on the little bike
1: they get real mad when they see the skinny tire <laughs> they get really mad, and there is something kind of deliciously wonderful about that but uh no it's true, it's true
0: <laughs> well, a pass earned like on an r one in the middle of a corner on a three hundred that that's it you earned it, right yeah. <laughs> <That> was... <laughs>
2: It's one of the most satisfying feelings. I, I love that you're on a little bike. That just this makes my heart grow three sizes.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were just talking before things kicked off that Alex, May, and Doctor Tolstoy, or Alex, me, and Doctor Tolstoy, all ride little bikes. But May, you have a different feeling about little bikes, right?
3: I mean, I still love them. They're great tools, but give me the power. Can I say?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> At least one of us is honest, <laughs> right? We're, we're all thinking that in the back of our mind, but we're like, no, no, yeah. no. So, um, Dr, Dr. Tolstoy, so let's let's start at the beginning. If Let's say you're a new rider, and we see this a lot, a new rider. They're all excited. They get the new bike. They want to go for a ride, and they head out there. And Monday morning, everything hurts. You know, what advice do you have or what things can a new rider do to kind of help ramp them into this experience a little more smoothly? Mm-hmm. First of all, Dave, please, for the love of God, just call me Matt. Nobody calls me Dr.
1: Tolstoy. <laughs> so I'm just some guy, you know, so just Matt is fine. But um, but this is such a good point about, you know, you get your bike, you're excited, you go out and you just ride literally all weekend, your first weekend, and you have a blast. And then you have less than a blast Monday morning when you wake up and everything feels terrible. Because a number of things, first and foremost, riding a motorcycle stresses your body in very unique ways, just because of the postures that we have to be in, the forces that get put through our body at different angles because of just the physics of riding a motorcycle. And then secondarily, a lot of people like, let's say they've bought a bike, but they haven't they haven't really kept up with body maintenance over time. They haven't been on a type of a uh, healthcare routine or anything like that. You haven't moved a lot for a little while. And then you go and you do this activity that requires a lot of your body um, that's sometimes a recipe for disaster. You can get hurt I work, you know, I've worked with a lot of people over time who literally within the first couple weeks of riding, because of the unique stressors and demands that the physics of the bike put on you, uh, you know, had some injury stuff crop up. And that's, that's just a bummer because we all remember like those first few months of riding, like when you first fall in love with this thing, it's awesome. And so if you would imagine, okay, you're three weeks into riding. And you're loving it and then all of a sudden your back goes out or you have a knee thing or you have a neck thing and then you can't ride for another few weeks like that's terrible and people tell me those types of stories uh pretty frequently so yeah i mean we really need to think about you know riding a motorcycle as a physical endeavor because it's asking a lot of your body and if we're unprepared for that like if our body's just cold and we just hop on and just go um it's gonna put a limiter on how much we can really enjoy the experience, and you just drop this money on this bike, you know, you're ready, you're loving it. And then something comes in and puts a huge damper on it. Um, that just that sucks. And so we want to try to avoid that by being more physically prepared for the bike. And Matt, uh, you and I had talked a while back
2: about how our body responds differently to, to different types of exercises and different uh, things we can do to make ourselves better on the motorcycle. And you had come up with this really beautiful analogy of, you know, different things are the equivalent of like the ECU for the bike and things like that. Could you walk us through that real quick? That way we can kind of get an understanding of how different activities and different approaches to this to our our bodies can impact ourselves on the motorcycle.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, th- there are so many great parallels between how the body works and how the bike works that if you're coming from a bike centric understanding, we can sort of like port some of these things over. So you can be like, Oh yeah, that makes sense for how I have to take care of myself. So the first thing you mentioned about the ECU, right? So it's like, it's like it, it programs and runs how the engine functions. Like, right. Like everything about how that works is coming from that system and what we can think about in terms of the human body, how we can, what we can say, like reflash the ECU or get things working from like what we'll call a top down perspective. It is, uh, this might sound crazy to start with, but it's honestly your breathing. Because what your breathing does, there's so many different things that it can do. Number one, when we're talking about this, what we call like top-down regulation, is that uh, it's going to monitor and control like how stressed we feel on the bike. If we're holding our breath and we're not breathing a lot and we're super tense, the corner's coming up on you, that's a very different experience. Then if you're cycling long breaths, you see things early, you know what to do, you've got your hands on the controls, you're prepped. It's just, a, what we say, it's a state. What we mean by a state is that it has like a psychological characteristic to it, it has physical qualities to it, and those things begin to line up in a certain type of quality that determines just the state that you're riding in. You know, many people can tell you know when you're having a good time on the bike and those things line up you're in that flow state it feels good you're hitting all the technical points that you want to do if you're out on the street you're being safe you're enjoying yourself you're observing you're, you're in the moment that's like a state and your breathing is going to be the thing that we use to really access the control and the enjoyment that those different types of states those flow states and focus states have to offer and really like breathing is like reflashing the ecu so that's like the first one Another big one, if we're talking about the breathing thing, breathing's doing double duty. It's doing the ECU thing. But I tell people, breathing is really like your suspension, it's like the piston, and it's like the tire pressure of your body. So just kind of like think about how important those three things are to the motorcycle. And if any one of them is off in a significant way, like you're having a bad time on the motorcycle if one of those things is dramatically messed up. And so to real quick go over like, okay, well now from a more mechanical standpoint, how is your breathing like your suspension? Well, when you breathe in, pressure in your torso changes, right? Like your diaphragm drops down, your lungs have to expand, you build intra-abdominal pressure down here. And I mean, it's physics, it's literally like pressure is moving around differently in your body and all of the different musculoskeletal systems are part of your system know what's happening from that pressure registration. So if when you breathe in, you only get a little bit of pressure differential here, but nothing's happening back here and nothing's happening in the abdomen, like your low back knows that and goes, oh, okay, we didn't fill up, so I got to stiffen up. And so it modulates kind of like the preload in your body based on how well air is moving around inside. So if you've got this like chronic neck tension on the bike or chronic low back stuff, a lot of times that can come from, your suspension's not set right you're just simply not breathing in a way that maximizes this pressure so like your internal springs are off so that's what i tell people all the time they come in and they're like oh, i'm gonna talk about breathing or whatever but it's like no think about it in this kind of way it's like your suspension uh we mentioned piston your diaphragm's got to pump up and down that's what creates that that's what creates that pressure if it's only good at doing one cycle of that maybe dropping down but not coming up super strong we don't have a good exhale we're leaving pressure on the table we don't have that good pistoning action in the center. And then lastly, with the tire pressure thing, we kind of mentioned it, if you're only inflating certain areas of your torso, if, if only certain areas are getting pressure, It's like a tire that has like a weird profile. And when the tire has a weird profile, you can hear it interact with the environment in a weird way. It's like Like it has this weird bumping in with the environment. That's the same thing with your torso. If you're only breathing in a certain way and we're only getting certain types of expansion, certain parts of your body just stay locked and held all the time and other parts are moving a lot. And then that is now like your back pain. That's how your tire here is interacting with your environment is that it's just trying to figure something out. And the best way it can do that is by stiffening certain things up. And that could be why you're feeling kind of crappy on the bike. So these are the main ways that we sort of take these bike analogies and apply them to like, how can we sync them up to what you're doing physically off and on the bike to just get you a better setup.
2: And, you know, looking, looking back, um, you know, when I started riding super stressed out, as much as I love the sport, you know, riding in traffic for the first time, you know, down the, down the freeway, super stressed out, probably wasn't breathing very well. First time I started doing track days, right? Same thing, like new environment, a little scary, like probably wasn't breathing very well. Started racing, same thing. I, I noticed it actually fairly quickly that I wasn't breathing very well. Um, and so like, as we go through the sport, like this breathing thing is so huge. You know, if you're, if you're mid race and you're not breathing well, like you're exhausting yourself. Um, not to mention you're losing focus, right? And we talk all the time about how how important focus is. So it it kind of amazes me um, just how simple, but how important this idea of breathing is.
3: Yeah, I find that crazy. Uh, I, I have a similar experience from when I started writing, you know, always stressed out, always tense. I just assumed, you know, at the end of the ride, my neck would hurt, My between my shoulder blades would hurt. I thought, oh, my body's not used to this. I need to work out more or something like that. I never once thought it was about breathing. But having you talk about it that way, it makes so much sense now. And it's so much easier of a fix than going to the gym and working out your shoulders and your neck. And I just, it's something I wish that I'd known a long time ago.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. This, this balance between what types of physical issues are most powerfully helped by increasing your strength and endurance because that's a real thing too don't get me wrong, that's a real thing too but sometimes like with the example you just gave me it's like okay the back of my neck and in between my shoulder blades are really stiff after riding and it's like oh maybe i'm not used to it and then like two months go by three months go by and it's like i am not getting used to it like what's happening and it's like then that's telling us okay that's not so much like a lack of strength because if you're riding consistently like after a little bit of time, like your body will pick that up, like it'll adapt. But if it's not, then probably what's happening is, and this is a pattern I see all the time with riders and also oftentimes with a lot of everyday people too, is like this area of the neck and the upper back. To go back to the whole tire profile thing, oftentimes what's happening is those people are not getting any breath expansion in that upper back area those back ribs in between the shoulder blades don't move and it's like why aren't they moving well it's because your body might be in this pattern where it's like hey i have to keep that upper back stiff in order to just keep myself stable and upright like if i let that go I know that I'm not getting the pressure down here to keep myself upright and stable, keep my eyes level with the horizon. So it's like, as much as you might even stretch it or get work done or do something up there to try to relax that area, it's like the second you get into that physical activity, which requires that increased stability, the brain's like, ah, I don't know, that's my pattern. Like I got to lock that up. And then in front, in the front side of the rib cage, that's where I breathe in. That's what expands, but this has got to stay locked up. And it's like, that's the pattern we're stuck in where if we can then trade some of that tire profile to get a little bit more cinched in down in the lower rib cage, but get more inflation back between the shoulder blades, that's what can finally give those muscles a break and let them cycle off so that they're not being like the linchpin for your whole upper body and neck stability. Like it's getting help with stuff elsewhere.
0: So that's a pattern that I see all the time with riders is with the upper back and neck stiffness. Yeah, never in a million years would I have thought that that kind of discomfort would come from it, a lack of breathing Because a, a funny story. Years ago, when I was first new to the track, someone came up to me and was like, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm really working on your breathing. And I was like, you're thinking about your breathing. That's silly. Why would you even think about your breathing? And then like six months later, I went up to, him. I was like, Hey, thinking about your breathing. Are you thinking about your breathing? It's amazing what a difference it makes, you know? But it's like, it's incredible to think it makes these kind of physiological differences in a way that most of us would think are are totally unrelated.
1: The physiological thing is huge, too, because people think, even some people who kind of understand a little bit about how, how like, breathing in a certain way can be helpful, they're like, yeah, it kind of just, like, chills you out a bit and, like, you know, qualitatively makes you feel a little bit better, but there's nothing, quote-unquote, real or physical that happens, and that's just not true. Like, there's a huge cascade of things that measurably happen inside your body when you breathe in these different ways in terms of like how your body releases stress hormone what we were just talking about uh muscle tension uh the balance in your blood between oxygen and co2 if we're not breathing in an optimal way co2 builds up faster and that's what makes us feel that we get the burning sensation that's what makes us feel like we got to breathe more that's what makes us tap out because we're not clearing co2 well enough and then that's what's going to cause us Uh, these types of physiological problems. So it's really not just like a cool groovy thing to do that's gonna like make you feel relaxed. It's like, that's this one tiny part of it. There's this whole cascade of like very real biochemical things that happen when you just learn to breathe with a little bit more skill. And Matt, we talked at the the school um, about even
2: timing of breaths. Like, you know, when we're exhaling and stuff and how that impacts what we're doing on the motorcycle. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
1: Uh, Yeah. Timing, timing, when we inhale, when we exhale can be huge, especially for what we're doing on the bike. Just because when we think about it, especially at the track, when we're really going for, you know, high amounts of, uh, we really got to eke out that last bit of performance and the little changes are going to make a big difference in what happens. And what I mean by what happens is whether or not we stay on the motorcycle (laughs) or not, is that if we have this like, uh, let's call it like a, like a non-synchronous breath pattern. We're just kind of all over the place, taking inhales here, taking short exhales here, and they're different lengths, and they're different, they're just like chaotic and all over the place. The chance that we're going to get the thing tipped over and we're going to be right at the apex, and if we're in the middle of this chaotic breath cycle, the idea that we're then somehow not going to, like, grab a whole fistful of throttle instead of be super, super precise, with how we roll that on, or if we're gonna get more aggressive with the controls or any type of input, and then do things that the bike is not happy with. That goes way up if our breath is all over the place for, the, for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about. It's physics. If pressure is moving around differently and in different amounts through your system, because you're taking these weird breaths, that's going to have an impact literally on like what your hands do or where your body placement is. Because if you have this like, let's say big inhale on one side of your body, and then you're going to try to, uh, turn the bike into the corner all that pressure is there and it's kind of like it's hard to really compress and relax that side of the body. So if you're not exhaling when you're going into the corner, we're leaving a lot of biomechanical advantage on the table because if this stays super inflated, there's only so much that we can compress and get into that good position. I mean, you, you look at anybody who's dragging elbow in MotoGP, none of those guys are in an inhale phase at that moment. Like nobody has a full uh, lung on that side that's that's dropped down everybody is totally completely exhaled at that point just because again it gets you into these postures that you need to really get to those higher levels of performance not to mention all the stuff that we've been really hitting hard here which is your, shen- your sense of focus and your sense of just control and mastery on the bike because you're able to just you're with every long breath cycle you're sending messages back to the like unconscious like, stress regulating parts of your brain, like, we're good, we're all right, you don't need that extra muscle tension, you know, bring the heart rate down, everything's good, but if we're kind of just taking these short chaotic breaths, it is sort of giving feedback back to this part of your brain that is not completely under conscious control, it's telling it, like, uh, I don't know, something feels like it's like ready to happen. We got to be like tense. We got to be ready to go. And that builds up. Even if you're just doing that a little bit every lap, let's say every corner, you're just leaving a little bit of that response inside the system. Okay, well, how many corners are in a lap? How many laps are you doing in a session? You know, that's going to that's gonna catch up to you the same way that if you take one tenth off in this corner and then another 10th off in this corner, and then that adds up to a couple seconds, seconds off your lap time. This can kind of flip around on you and be like, I'm building up this sort of uh, chaotic stress response once one tenth at a time, if we're not really exhaling through the corner and then taking a nice inhale as we drive the thing off.
2: So Matt, we talked a lot about breathing now um, and how that's kind of the equivalent of our ECU. So walk us through like, let's start talking about physical fitness and specifically uh, flexibility versus access.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is a big concept for people because these words, you know, in like healthcare, fitness, media, get thrown around a lot, and people think they mean the same thing. Um, and it can be helpful to understand some of these some of these crucial differences between the terms. Just because it's not just about the semantics of it, but it's also about it, it clarifies what the goal then is. Like, what are we trying to do? You know, that it sets that a little bit more clearly. So we talk about flexibility from a classic definition standpoint like what flexibility is is what your what your tissues and joints are able to achieve when you stay totally relaxed and like somebody else moves your body around so it's like you lay on your back and somebody stretches your arm into different ranges of motion when you're totally relaxed you're not doing the movement but some other force is moving you how far can your tissues and joints go so that's, we call that passive range of motion because you're not actively doing it. Somebody or like a, let's say like a like a yoga strap or something is pulling your body into that position to just see, okay, well, what can it do? Whereas mobility uh, is going to be what you can actively achieve with your own muscular effort to move into a range of motion. And you might say like, why does that matter? But you'd be surprised how many people have dramatic differences between their active and their passive range of motion. Then maybe will say, come to me all the time and say, oh man, my hamstrings are so tight. I feel them. They're, they're just like tight all the time. And they bother me. I must be so inflexible in my hamstrings. So I'll come in and say, okay, I'll have them lay on their back and do a straight leg raise with them. And they've got like a hundred degrees of straight leg raise mobility. And it's like, you don't have like, you don't have a flexibility problem in your hamstrings. It's then I say, okay, here, can you actively raise your leg? And they don't have a hundred degrees of active. They've got like 40 and it's like, okay. Here is our problem, your hardware can do 100 degrees of stray leg raise when you lay on your back, but your software, the way that your brain is organizing your movement patterns, can really only get you to 40. So sure, I believe you that you feel tense there and that this is a problem area for you, but it's not because your hardware can't get into those positions. It's that your brain doesn't know how to coordinate an efficient enough strategy to get you there. And so it, it, it maxes out at 40 because it's just like it's pulling on muscles that don't have good leverage. Uh, we're maybe not integrating well with some core pressure with your hip and your leg muscles. And so there's this, there's this uh, dissonance between that pattern and says, oh, I can only give you 40. And that's a very different solution than somebody whose passive straight leg raise is 40 degrees and their active straight leg raise is 35. It's like, okay, we might now have an actual limitation in the hardware. Maybe you've had surgery, maybe you've had injuries, maybe there's something going on that is more mechanical in nature. But knowing the difference between, well, if, if, if somebody else can stretch my arm in, in this way and I'm Gumby... And I go to reach overhead and all of a sudden my back pops out and my shoulders come up and I get a pinch here. It's like we need to work more on how your body's coordinating and stabilizing that movement than we do stretching and blowing up your tissues and doing all kinds of like high force stuff on that structure. Because the passive range of motion is showing us like you've got it. Like your hardware can get there. It's just having a hard time figuring it out. And this is a big, big, big change for people because people will say, I don't know, i heard stretching is good. I do 97 minutes of stretching every day, but nothing gets any better. It's like, yeah, because maybe you didn't have a flexibility problem to begin with. You had a mobility problem. And that's a very different solution. And that's maybe why all the static stretching in the world is not really doing it for you.
0: How does one approach a mobility? How does one fix that? When somebody has a mobility problem,
1: but their hardware can move really well. All right, what's happening? Essentially what's happening is we are mismanaging tension in the body. Because when you actively move into a range of motion, something has to be free enough to actually let go and stretch. But then other things have to turn on so that you you just don't fall over. You know, we have a little saying. You know, you can't, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe, right? Like, it's there's no base for you to pull against. Like, the muscles have to pull against something. And if you go to raise your arm overhead and your brain registers, uh, I don't have the stability in these segments of, let's say, the ribcage and the core and the low back underneath the arm. It's like, uh, I don't know how to let that go. So just kind of generally tense everything up so that we don't, you know, get the shoulder into a position that then could get hurt or overstretched or something like that. So what we're really looking at with mobility problems is like how do we get the tension in your body to be distributed more effectively because right now if i go to raise my arm and it's like i get kind of stuck somewhere i'm relying too much on tension somewhere inside of that joint structure where it should be relaxing and i should be able to just let go so probably in that case, what we would do is give you something to do with the core. Maybe it's like with the other band, you know, or with the other hand, hold a band like tense that's trying to pull you away so your core has to react and stabilize against that. You take big breaths, then you reach overhead several times and feel the difference between okay, can we sync up stability here with then more relaxation up top so that we're not trying to drive the whole thing from the shoulder itself? It's usually an integration problem with stability somewhere else and relaxation somewhere else. So those are the types of drills that we'd set up for somebody with a mobility problem versus a flexibility problem.
3: So where do these type of issues come from? Is it an injury related thing? Is it like in your mind? Like, where does this come from?
1: It can definitely can come from injury because when we have an injury and something hurts, it changes the way our brain organizes muscle tension in that area. And it makes sense because if you fall and separate your shoulder, For a period of time, it will hurt if certain muscles around that shoulder contract at the right time with the right force, because it's pulling on something that's injured. And so your brain goes, whoa, 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 I got to detune some of this stuff here, we we have to reorganize, this goes back to the ECU thing, like we have to reorganize how power is expressed through this area, because if I give you full throttle on that shoulder muscle on a separated shoulder, it's going to separate even further. And so the brain recognizes that. And as a self-protective mechanism, it says, oh, okay, we, we got to reshuffle the deck here. What's happening? The problem is, is that after that separated shoulder heals, sometimes the, the body never gets the message again, that it's safe to go full power on that deltoid again. And it kind of, it, it gets like left in this compensatory pattern because we never rehabbed it correctly, or we never really brought it back into the fold. And so that's where these types of mobility problems can linger on over time. And sometimes it's not from an injury, it's just from being human. You know, we all have stuff where, you know, shit happens, right? Like we get into certain patterns and because of, let's say, you know, one person has longer legs than another person, and another person has a longer torso than another, their body's constantly coming up with new movement strategies, and we get into habits and patterns. We have habits of movement like we have habits of anything else, and sometimes those habitual patterns that we get into just are putting certain uh, certain structures on a lot of work, and other structures are not you know, carrying their weight as much as they could be, just because of the habitual pattern that we're in. And so sometimes, Oftentimes this is a result of injury. And sometimes it's just as a result of, you know, we sit a lot, we're not as active as we were when, you know, this came from the factory. And so th- there's a lot of there's a lot of things that push us into these uh, patterns of altered movement control that lead to us, you know, feeling stiff or feeling tired or feeling uncomfortable with certain body regions.
2: So we talk a lot about, you know, different degrees of applications when it comes to different things on motorcycles. Um, so for a newer rider, you know, who's just getting started on the street and everything, mobility seems to be you know, somewhat important, access and you know, flexibility seems to be somewhat important. But as you progress through the sport, and let's say you want to get into racing, right? It's like the Moto America guy it's like, how important is this ability to access um, these different ranges of motion to someone at that level versus someone who is
1: a newer rider, The degree of application will absolutely be different because, hey, if you go on street rides and, you know, you're not going to the track, you're not racing, you don't need to, like we said earlier, you don't need to figure out the exact body position to drag elbow or something like that. Sure, to go for a great uh, weekend ride for a few hours and not feel like crap afterwards, uh, the types of physical things that you need to do are definitely uh, less involved than the things that somebody at the Moto America level needs to do just because of the things that the moto america people need to do physically on the bike are just way more extreme than people who let's say just want to have a good time riding in the canyons or something like that so just like with the technique application of it's all the same thing we're just talking about like where on this bell curve do you do you live um it's the same thing with 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 uh body control and body awareness and mobility and everything like that you know, you just need enough to not feel terrible. So if that means that the amount of hip flexibility you need is just like 15 to 20% more than it than you have right now, that's totally fine. It, it really just it just needs to suit what your goals are and what you need to do. You know, because more isn't always better. You know, uh, better is better, you know, and so sometimes better for somebody means oh, you just need a little tweak here or there and then that's good enough and then as your goals change, that that application can change. But it's just like the it's just like the technical application of motorcycle riding skill. It's all the same thing. Like, you need to be able to rotate. You need to be able to control and breathe. You need to be able to turn and rotate and keep your eyes level with the horizon. You need good hip mobility. You need good knee flexibility. Like, you need these things, but uh, how much knee flexibility and control do you need on a Multistrada 950? Versus on a full send race bike, well, okay, that's a little different. So how we get there might be different, but it is all still kind of the same thing, just degrees of application. And we, we talked, uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago,
2: um, saw this picture of Cody Wyman looking like an absolute goon uh, on an MT-10 at Indy. And the discussion was about how if... You know, typically our, our eyes, body and brakes need to all work, you know, kind of in tandem in order for us to really enjoy being on a motorcycle and in order for the motorcycle to really get the message that, of what we're trying to do. So if our body is preventing us from working with our eyes and brakes, right, we have to fight that. We have to be really good with our eyes and brakes to make up for that. So it kind of sounds like, Matt, what you're saying is get your body to a point where you're at least not fighting what you're trying to do, Right. If you can get further than that, great, but get to a minimum, like try to get to a point where you're not fighting your eyes and brakes.
1: That's such a great point because that principle is true. It's like a, it's like a fractal, like it's true at a low level. Then, it, then as it goes up, it's true at all of these levels of the system. So if we're talking most, like most zoomed out of eyes, body and breaks, and if you don't have one of them, the other two are really going to try to make up for it. This is, this is also true inside the mechanics of the body. So, to then go in on, let's say, eyes a little bit more, um, you'd be really surprised with how many people's eyes and body um, are kind of fighting each other a little bit. What I mean by that is, if you think about all the things our eyes have to do, in terms of being able to move quickly, in terms of being able to move with your head and with your neck, as well as stay steady and let your head and neck change and move, there's a lot of these really complicated patterns that your eyes have to do in relation to what your body does. And a lot of times what I'll see with people, um, particularly track riders and racers, again, who are looking for these high levels of performance is that we'll get them in one position of their body and neck and head, ask their eyes to do something and there there gets to be all of this like discombobulation in their system they'll get dizzy or they'll lose tracking like i'll you know move my thumb and all of a sudden there'll be like these shutters in their eyes because these are areas that are not integrated between their vision and their body and so that's just a, that's just an example of how your eyes and your body can sort of be on different pages but the same thing applies with the rest of your body maybe maybe your upper back and ribcage can rotate really well but you have like no rotation in your hips and you're trying to get off the bike and all of a sudden now your system's fighting and you can't get it you're going to over rely on other things so this idea that all of these different systems of the body and then the different systems of technical application on the motorcycle all like are interdependent and when one is not really working so well the others kind of go into overdrive and listen they don't everything doesn't have to be perfectly even but like you said if there's a huge difference And how you feel between one skill set or one area of the body and the other, um, that difference is going to be really hard on some part of your system. And that if we can get that off the table, now you can just have more of your energy and focus devoted towards technical application, not just trying to not
0: fight yourself. Now, I've I've been watching, probably like everybody this winter, uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix, right? The, The Formula One documentary. And if you're not watching it, it's great fun. But it's, you look at these guys, And they're just driving a car, right? Which is way easier than riding a motorcycle. They're just driving a car. But the amount of physical exercise, they are effectively athletes. They are, you know, the physical training, not only like with the little poppy things they hit on the wall, they hit the colors, you know, to to speed up the eyes, the flexibility. The one that blows me away is like the weights on the neck. You know, they have these big heavy weights on the... and, And I am continually impressed with how much more should we be doing on a motorcycle where we are 30% of that equation? We're not just a passenger in a car trying to hold on. You know, we affect how that motorcycle moves based on how we move on the motorcycle.
1: That's per- like, that's it. Like that is, that's so, that's so it. So when we're talking about, yeah, flexibility, mobility, and, and the things that you mentioned with the weight on the neck, just like the strength endurance, the ability of our tissues that, uh, are going to be repetitively put under force during the activity. Like these are all things that need to be, uh, lined up so that we, (laughs) so that we can change the way the motorcycle moves. That's really, I mean, that's really such a great way of saying it because if, if you think about it this way, it's not even just so much the way the motorcycle moves is going to put stress on our body. And and like we said, in the beginning of the conversation, if we're not prepared for that, we feel badly on Monday, that's the tip of the iceberg after that. Like when we start to try to get more and more technically proficient and we try to do and achieve more on the motorcycle, it's not just, oh, you feel bad. It's also like, you can't get the thing to move right because you can't move. Right? Yeah. And so these types of things of trying to figure out, okay, what, what system of my body or what segment of my body is not allowing me to let the motorcycle move right? Is it hip flexibility? Is it rotation? Is it breathing? Is it neck? Is it vision? Is it shoulder stuff? Like all of these things are on the table. And so we really need to think about it, not just from not just from like a qualitative do I feel good or not feel good, because those are also super important too. Listen, it's a hobby for most people. You're supposed to freaking enjoy it, okay? But number two, it's also like it's gonna change the way the motorcycle behaves in a much more dramatic way than the way a car moves. And that that's just such a good point. And so this is where it's like if you haven't really thought about, you know, upping your game when it comes to your physical abilities. Try to think about it this way, like you said, you're 30% of that equation. How you move is how the motorcycle moves, and how you don't move is also how the motorcycle doesn't move. And so we, we got to start to tie these two things together to get the most out of the hobby.
2: One of the things that really strikes me too is you know that that how you move thing is your muscular strength and endurance is so important in this sport. You know, especially your core, right? Uh, not only your ability to you know flex and rotate your core, but just the stability there, because if I'm, if I, if my core is not stable, right, as I'm coming into, you know, any corner on the street or on the track, I'm going to have a bunch of weight in my hands that I don't want mid-corner. I'm going to be holding on the bars as I exit the corner. And all of a sudden, how I'm moving, putting all this weight on the bars as I'm, you know, mid-corner, when I should be no weight on the bars, that's going to dictate how the motorcycle moves. All of a sudden, I'm going to be either fighting the motorcycle for direction, or it's going to kind of, do its own thing, or it's not going to steer. You know, we hear it all the time, like, "Oh, my motorcycle doesn't steer; it must be a suspension issue." No, it's probably just that your your core is not activated, and you have a bunch of weight in your hands.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed from teaching females. May is that men tend to really rely on the hands a lot, right? And and females who tend not to have that upper body strength seem to be better at using the lower body and the rest of their physiology. More efficiently, which is a really fascinating dynamic between these two demo, you know, the other two demographics.
3: Well, I mean, yeah. It, as far as just biology, that's how women are built. We have more strength in our legs than we do our upper body. So, you know, for me, my the strength of my legs has never really been an issue. It's just I've always felt it, you know, in my arms and in my back, and I've had to train that a little bit more. Um, It's, I guess I've trained stability in my legs, but as far as strength in my legs, I've never really had to worry about that.
1: It's a great point about, to hop in with what you just said, the the difference between strength and stability is crucial. Because when you think about it, like, we don't need tons of max strength on a motorcycle. Like, honestly, being really explosive and strong on a motorcycle um, is really not what we're trying to go after. there's nothing wrong with training strength and being explosive because those are just good human qualities to have. And just because you're strong doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to start throwing the bike around in a chaotic way. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying like, how we would prioritize, like how tall is the bar that represents our maximum strength training in our overall picture versus our stability and endurance. It's like, it makes up a smaller portion if our goal is to perform better on the motorcycle. And this quick difference between strength and stability that I think is also important is... Stability doesn't mean rigidity. It doesn't mean, like, not moving. It means uh, having good control over movement. Like, okay, I'm going to lean off the motorcycle, but I'm not just giving over to gravity, and I'm also not just not moving. It's like, how can this side of my body actually relax and accept my weight, but in a controlled kind of way. That's the stability that we're after, which is where sometimes, like, when we think, oh, I need more stability, I'm just going to do a million planks and hold them for 90 minutes or something like that. There's nothing, like, tremendously wrong with that, but it just becomes inefficient at a certain point because we're we're not trying to train that sort of stability. We're trying to train this kind of, like, control over the body as we move. And that, sure, you need a requisite amount of strength, like you need to be able to move your body weight around, like, don't get me wrong. But after we check that box at a certain early level, now it's kind of like, can we control that strength in all of these different directions with these like minute, minute changes in the way that our body moves?
3: Yeah, I think that when you look at working out, um, you need to start thinking about the way you move on your motorcycle. So one of the things I don't know where Alex came up with this crazy exercise that we do, um, but and it probably looks absolutely ridiculous at the gym. Um, we'll stand about shoulder width apart or wherever our feet would be on the pegs, and then we take a plate and we go off to one side as we would moving across the bike, and it's incredibly difficult. And but I think it's helped because that's what we do on the bike, so that's what we train.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's great. It's a great application of specificity because the body will do what you ask it to do and sure like doing a barbell back squat to strengthen your legs is a super legit exercise and you'll get a ton of benefit out of it but uh there is a level of specificity to what we need to do to get over on one side of the bike and over on the other that the back squat doesn't quite capture and so this isn't to say you have to choose one or the other look do both but the idea that like mm, we're we're leaving something on the table and then alex comes up with this brilliant thing of like yeah what if i had weight hit this way and then i turn and then it was like wow that lights up my legs in the same kind of way as being on the foot peg yes because that's what we're looking for in training we're looking for this magic zone of like it has transferability to your to your activity you're not just getting better at the individual exercise the exercise is having carryover to what you do but also particularly for endurance athletes and people doing things like a million reps in a row, you can't just do the same thing over and over and over again because you're gonna get overuse injury. Like there's only a certain amount that the hardware of your body can can handle. So it's like, we gotta find this middle zone of like a really good specific application that has carryover, but it's not just like do the thing over and over and over again, because then that, that has a different type of cost associated with it. But that, that rotational exercise side to side with a plate, it's like, yeah, that's totally what we need to develop from a gym standpoint to have carryover.
2: Yeah, and doing coaching, especially down at, at Utah and you know, working with you know, individual riders at a time, one of the biggest things I see, and I know you see this too, Dave, is just a lack of ability to really move in that transverse plane, right, of a lot of riders. They're just unable, or they, they think they're doing it, but they're really not rotating um, at all with their upper body. And so just understanding like all the different dynamics that go into the different individual movements on the motorcycle and understanding how to use those to your advantage and how to work those um, really opens up a lot of, like
0: like you were saying earlier, a lot of that access as well. Yeah, yeah. we see them moving the bum, but they can't move the shoulders, right? Tit to tank. Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one thing, Matt, that I really love about your Instagram, and I think your Twitter is the same way, but I'm not good at Twitter, is you... you your holistic approach to these things. You know, you'll do a post that's about the the physical strength or about the breathing. And then two days later, you'll do a post that is really heavy about some of the mental aspects that we deal with. Like, the it's frustrating recovering from an injury. You know, the mental anguish of, like, trying to get past that and you get so discouraged. And you'll talk about that on, on your feed. And it's, so for anyone who's not following him on Instagram, you really should because I just love how you look at things not just from like a singular little angle, but this big and thing, right? This big picture look at it all. Sure, no, I appreciate it, Dave. And, and I think
1: I've sort of, I, I've kind of over the course of, of my career gone further into that, into that arena just because I, I would just see how incomplete having, having a smaller uh, window of application would be when it came to trying to help people. You know, at the end of the day, it's like sometimes like your elbow ouchie is is not just an elbow ouchie, you know. And there are other systems of the body, whether that be the stuff that we're talking about with breathing or whether that be about how you're relating to your injury and your pain from more of like a psychological perspective. Um, these things all have impact. And, and the quick note on the on more of the mental health side of things is that just like we we're talking about with the breathing thing. The way that we've come to understand like your mental and emotional approach to pain or stress or or whatever, whatever the difficult thing is, is that it has, again, very real physiological impacts, measurable biochemical, biological changes happen in your body with those types of, again, they're all part of what we said in the very beginning here, like states, how your body feels, what your breath is like, where your mind is at how all of this feels. It has like a feeling tone to it. In addition, that latches onto the physical states as well, because listen to the, to the part of us, you know, I treat a lot of people who have, you know, they have had like, let's say a concussion or something like that. And then they mention like, Hey man, listen, um, I never had panic attacks until I had my concussion and now I'm in New York city. So it's like, Hey, I'm on the subway. And all of a sudden, like routinely, I start freaking out. And it's not like I have, a psychological thought like oh I'm, I'm scared somebody's on the train or the train's going to break down or we're going to get tra-. he's like it's not psychologically generated like i just there's something about the environment that sends my body off and it's like we we think of that as a mental health thing but it's not always generated by thoughts it's like the stress hardware of our body is is super ancient like we share it with lizards we share it with all other mammals like nature has groomed this thing in a very general kind of way that has a little bit of a relationship to like our like cognitive psychological thinking self but a lot of it is also just like the same thing happens in your body um when you have an injury and you feel tired and you feel pain and you're stressed from that the same type of stress hormones get pumped out your heart rate goes up your breathing changes that happens the same thing happens when you get the email that you don't want to get, right? And you read it. Like if we measure those those biochemical things, those same things happen. And so mental health things have a physical impact and physical things have a mental impact. You know, we've drawn this distinction between the two of them in our sort of investigation of the body over the last couple hundred years. But the more that we learn about it, the more that we realize that there's a large set of hardware in our brain That doesn't give a crap about your psychological context it's just thoughts response body response like it's it's really super tied together and so when you're dealing with an injury or you're dealing with a really bad off on the bike or something like that uh we really need to address both of those layers together because they're talking to each other in these unconscious parts of your brain and nervous system that when you get on the bike and go to reach for the lever and there's something about your hand position that kinda makes you get startled again because that was the position your body was in when you had the crash. It's like, we can only do so much cognitive work on that. Like we need to have the body and the brain talking to each other in a different way. And so this is just something that I've come to uh, explore a lot more with people uh, there are different approaches that I've sought out to get trained in to be able to help people on that front. Because it's a huge area of overlap that I think, particularly riders and particularly people who have, again, had life-threatening situations happen to them or really close to life-threatening things happen to them. We can't just be like, oh, your neck's good. i <clears throat> Like, see ya. Like, hey, listen, if it, if it is just your neck and it's just your neck, that's a great day and I'm psyched for you and we want to get that better. But um, more often than not, it's not just your neck when you've had one of those situations. And in order to really make sure that you get back to where you were before and maybe even better, uh, we, we just have to address all of these layers together. And that's just a huge part of what I do because it's just how the human system works. You know, it's not just a nice idea. It's like, this is how we're wired up and we've come to learn about that um, as, as biomedical science has uh, evolved over time. And this holistic approach is super,
2: super important, um, especially in the, you know, the age of specialization where I go to the doctor with a shoulder injury and depending on what type of type of doctor he is, I get a different, you know, synopsis of what's wrong, a different diagnosis. So I go to a surgeon he's, Oh, well, clearly you need reconstruction. I go to a physical therapist. Oh, well you just need to do this, this, and this stretch. You know, I go to a, you know, insert X here, you'll get Y response there. And one of the things that, um, I've been working on lately is I, you know, I, I, uh, have been learning more about how the brain deals with trauma um, from totally unrelated to motorcycle issues, but pertinent to this conversation, because having a bad off is a traumatic experience and how your brain processes that is not just a a mental thing. It's a physical thing, like how your brain actually rewires itself um, internally to deal with that trauma. So my question for you, Matt is say I'm a rider that just had a really bad off, whether it was on the street or on the track, what advice would you give me to get over that or move forward
1: as best I could? This is such, this is like such an important conversation for riders and for, for people in general, because what, you know, what you're saying, Alex, is so true in terms of our evolving understanding of, of trauma is is so different from what people like just think of it you know commonly in reality now if you think about it post-traumatic stress disorder was not an official psychiatric diagnosis until the mid-80s like the mid-80s was how long it took for us to have like a systemized diagnostic criteria to be like oh this is this is a thing like there are long-term physical and behavioral changes that happen in people who have had these types of events happen it took until the 80s to even get there. And then even then, it was a really, really uh, rigid definition that just did not fit some of these things that we've come to understand about how the brain and the body uh, respond to uh, really difficult and, again, you know, potentially life-threatening situations. And so if you've had one of those events happen where you notice that just some of these responses are happening inside of you, th- there are certain things that we want to start with. Number one, we want to start with trying to understand more about the contexts you're in when these responses happen. So here, I'll use myself as an example because uh, I was riding around Harriman Park um, back in 2018 and uh, I hit a deer when I was on was was on uh, a motorcycle. I was fine, like gear did a great job. I wasn't going like 40 miles an hour. It was just one of these like blind turns, that turn around and the thing just kind of in a split second jumps out and I had a bit of a bed off with it. Um, But I could tell when I sat on the motorcycle again, once I got back on the motorcycle, there was something about looking down at my hands that if I really paid attention to what was happening in my body, uh, it made my breath get really short. I kind of got like tense. My neck sort of started to do something. I kind of felt something in my stomach. And there was just something about looking down at my hands that started that response. And so there are these little things that, you know, what makes a traumatic experience traumatic is oftentimes too many things happen too fast and your body just can't catch up. And all of a sudden something really terrible happens and you have to like figure something out in order to save your own life or get away or do something. And so these unprocessed like steps in the event can sometimes be still holding on to this life threat charge that then maybe there was a moment when I was about to, you know, hit the deer where I kind of had looked down at my hands and that was just tied up with something real bad is about to happen that I don't want to happen. And so what I started to do was I would get on the bike and then I would just kind of look down at my hands, and at my hands, feel a little bit of that like stress charge show up in my body. And then just kind of like what we said at the very beginning of this conversation, take long cycles of breath feel my feet on the ground, register that I'm good, you know, look around, let my vision, peripheral vision expand. When we get stressed, we can become narrow vision. So the idea is to feel the hands, but to now have it in the context of all these other less stressful physical experiences so that the brain can begin to re-record, okay, that's actually not a thing that we need to really be on alert about. It's just your hands looking down. Okay. And then the next step, the next step, we got to find the ways in which your system's getting pushed into that quick response to, oh man, I'm under this life threat that's happening quickly and unconsciously. And so when we start to unpack those things, that's where we can, that's where we can go. But the crucial thing from a practical standpoint is take things really slowly, because the whole point is that they're happening fast and automatic. You can't just go like, oh, and then I get on the bike and then I jump and then I rock. It's like, no, 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 no. We got to take it step by step and catch something that maybe, at the speed of life, you wouldn't really catch. Like, if I just got on the bike and turned the key and got going, I might be, you know, half a mile down the road before I realized, well, my chest feels kind of weird, or like, I notice my throat feels a little tight. When actually the moment that happened was something about looking down at my hands was a deal. So you got to go slowly to begin to unpack these things. And it also, especially if you've had a really, really tough situation, You don't want to go too fast because sometimes that can lead to uh some sort of uh panic response because the body's like well i gotta get out of here this is like a b c d and i know how this sentence ends because i've been here before and then the energy of it is too strong so we got to meet this zone of where you like feel some of that stress response come on but it's manageable. You can kind of just watch it and kind of be with it and kind of breathe, start to notice other different types of physical experiences that are not the, the stress response. It's that Goldilocks zone of enough to feel the response, but not so much that it's, again, like overwhelming to your system. And we just chip away at that over time, the next step, the next step, the next step. And then that's how your body catches up to, oh, I made it through and I'm good. Like we can We can close the tab on that. That sentence now has a period at the end of it. So no, know that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a deep dive on that.
0: But I mean, does that make sense? Or do you guys have like questions about that part? Well, it's, it's an interesting topic too, because not just the threat response, but also the adaptation to like a long-term chronic injury. Alex and I are both veterans. Both of us have the same veteran kind of injuries that every veteran seems to get. Well, yeah. And the back, has your back ever been the same? Right. And it's, finding ways, I've noticed that if if I don't stay on top of all of these things, those injuries start to really manifest. And then since motorcycling is something I love to do more than anything else, that starts to impact the riding. And now I can't get out and go do the thing that I ride, and I start to kind of spiral. And it's, what advice do you give to the person who's dealing with that long-term, not just a, the the traumatic, the trauma of the the mental aspect of it, but the recovery from this, like my back will never be the back it was before I joined the army, before that one time we landed in the airplane bad, you know? Yeah. Those are
1: tough situations, you know, because when you've had something like that, that fundamentally changes what it feels like your body can do or not do, um, there, there is like a, you know, we all have a relationship. There is a relationship that we have to ourselves. And when something like that happens, it changes our relationship to not just your back, but like yourself. Because like you mentioned, it can get in, if, if you're not relating to it a certain way, it gets in the way of stuff that you love to do. And then that makes everything else worse. And then all of a sudden now work sucks. And all of a sudden the relationships you have with the people you care about suffer. And it, like just, and it, just, it just really cascades down the line. So if you're dealing with something like that, like an injury or some sort of physical condition that has you know just fundamentally changed your life, I think you hinted to it, Dave, is that we got to find our ways to maximize the things that. I mean, it sounds it sounds ridiculous because it's like duh, but you'd, you'd be surprised how many people don't do this. We have to find the ways that meaningfully maximize your positive experiences, and we have to prioritize them. To to use your example, Dave, if riding really is that for somebody, but we let certain things get in the way of it that maybe don't need to get in the way of it, you know, if there are certain things that we're not scheduling intentionally, or maybe some of the things we're talking about today, you love riding, uh, but sometimes if you ride without doing enough physical prep, uh, you can't ride for another two weeks. Okay, then that means that we got to prioritize doing some of the physical stuff so that that doesn't get in the way of your riding, so that then that doesn't become one of the pillars of positive support in your life. Now suddenly it gets compromised because I didn't intentionally do some of the mobility stuff that I know if I hit that a few times a week, I'm good to go. We got to figure out how to structure the choices you make on like a daily and weekly basis to make sure that we shore up and keep a level of protection around the things that are really working for you, because those types of resources that are like bolstering and holding up the positive aspects of your life, we just really need to identify what they are so that they don't just happen by accident you know, like, oh, I'm having a great day. And then like, I have no idea how I got here. It's like, wow, well, that's tough. It's like, cause now we can, we can't replicate that. You know, we, we can't intentionally design things around making that happen more intentionally instead of just when the stars align and all of a sudden now I feel kind of sort of better. We, we got to bring more awareness to it to know, Hey, you know what? I feel like crap on Saturday. And Yeah, I missed I missed that workout. I probably should have gone, even though I was tired, and done half of what I normally would have done to just keep the ball rolling. Or you know, I ate takeout four times this week instead of once, and I really you know I'm feeling that. Or I didn't take some time to I don't know. Maybe you like maybe you need to come at the end of the day and like uh, do free writing for twenty minutes or something to just get thoughts out of your head and just write and do like you know something like that to just brain dump and get thoughts out of your brain to deload from work. We got to find these like little actionable habits and patterns that you can build that then put a level of protection around the things that support the good stuff going on and then be working with some sort of professional to be like, okay, how can we then achieve what we want to achieve on the injury front? But it's like, if we're really, if we're really having a hard time supporting yourself, supporting ourselves over here with the positives, it's like, we can't bring that then to the work with the clinician or the professional to work on the other aspects of it. It's like, you've only got half a tank of gas to really work on that. We, we wanna have as much available as possible to then get that positive momentum spinning in the area of concern by protecting these other areas too. So Matt, speaking of working with a professional, talk to me a little bit about motorsport athlete athlete and kind of what you do. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so Motorsport Athlete is a program that's kind of set up around the type of stuff that we're talking about. Exercises that and mobility drills that you can do that are specifically designed for motorcyclists and people who uh, want to do the things that we're talking about. You know, be like, okay, this all sounds great. Like, what, what do I do? You know, it's like, these are drills that are around the stuff that, we're, that, that we've been talking about all day, rotation, body control, these types of stability things. It's not, it's not a program that's like a, a general fitness program. Like you still need to be doing all the good stuff in the gym that we're talking about. It, it's exactly what, we t- what, what what May was mentioning you back squat, you do something like that, and you need to do Alex's rotation exercise with the plate. Motorsport athlete is like, okay, what is a library of those plate rotating side to side on the bike exercises that maybe are, is not captured by a typical, uh, general physical preparedness, uh, exercise program. And so it's also some of this conceptual stuff of like, okay, well, what does even my back need to do on the bike? Well, here, let me break it down for you. This is what it's got to do. It's got to rotate, it's got to go with the hips here, but it's got to go away. Your neck's got to go to, you know, so you can understand a little bit more about the physical demands of the bike and then some practical applications of just things you can do easily at home with like minimal equipment to uh, get yourself feeling better on the bike. Awesome. Are you going to be offering any kind of like video coaching or anything like that? Yeah, it's stuff that I do for people all the time. You know, if you're not in the greater New York City area, we can't do in person. There's so much that we can do online in terms of you know we can meet take a look you know take you through some some movements kind of check out and see like what might be a little bit stuck in your body and how we can free that up a little bit give you walk you through some drills and then come up with again just a specialized home program that you can do that addresses like you know uh the area that you could most improve on and then unlock your body a bit. I know
2: around uh you know the champ school circles your kind your name is kind of like synonymous with
1: Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if I want to hear the end of that sentence. (laughs) We can just cut the podcast there. That's good. Thanks, guys. Bye.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but really, like, your name is kind of synonymous with, you know, um, developing more access to things and improving our abilities, like, physical abilities, um, not only physical, but really mental as well, on the motorcycle. Um, And so, like obviously we wholeheartedly from the school side believe in in what you're teaching and and love this best practices and holistic approach. Um, right. It has brought our collective level of understanding of, you know, proprioception, even just the fact that I know that word is thanks to you. It's our new favorite <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I yeah. use it whenever possible. <laughs> um, but really just, just this ability to not just diagnose like what our control manipulations are doing on the bike, but our, what our bodies are doing what our minds and eyes and everything are doing on the bike. So, you know, thank you for that. And you know, if anybody listening or watching really wants to talk to somebody that knows kind of this side of the sport inside now, like go talk to Matt, he is the guy. There, there's a reason we use him. Um,
3: there's a reason when I sprained my ankle and tore basically everything in my ankle, I asked Matt what I should do instead of going to a doctor. Well, it's frustrating. You go to
0: a doctor who doesn't ride motorcycles and invariably you're going to get the lecture about how you shouldn't be riding motorcycles. And that's irritating. You know, like I would much rather talk to Matt, who's not going to judge me for my life choices. He's going to help me get, you know, continue doing those life choices. To be fair, Dave, I might still judge you for your life choices, but just not for
1: motorcycle riding, okay? I just want want that to be on the record, all right? All right, that's
0: a fair point. point. It's
2: because Dave doesn't like World of Warcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, insider insight. Matt is a huge nerd. Huge nerd.
1: Absolutely exposed.
2: I
0: think we all have our nerd stuff. Like, there's a Millennium Falcon right there. There's, like, yeah, there's a lot of nerdy stuff.
1: Well, I I think that, you know, like, motorcycling also does attract a certain type of nerdy person because it, it does sort of fit that category of like, I don't know what the overlap is. I'd have to think about that a little bit more, but there are a lot of us here. Well last question for you Matt is when are you giving a TED talk on this stuff? Because this oh, is a super fascinating topic. <laughs> like they need yeah. to get you on the, the list. I know that would be that would be cool. Just well, also just because you know riders in this in this realm of of the things that cluster with the sport. Um, you know, we're just like underserved in this kind of way. If you were just like, I don't know, let's get on a bike. And then most people are even like, oh, riding a motorcycle is a sport. Like, heh. and it's like, have you like because they haven't been on a motorcycle and there's just this, there's just this complete disconnect between how we can be more intentional about taking care of ourselves in order to feel better and perform better on the bike. And it's just such a huge area of opportunity. Uh, for riders to take advantage of. And then I think really where the magic though of it comes is that when you start to get your shit together in order to be better on the bike, like your life also just gets better. Like nobody has ever gotten into shape and been like, man, I wish I didn't do that. That sucks. It's like, you feel (laughs) awesome. Like (laughs) life gets better. You become like a happier, better person for yourself. You become like a more reliable person that people enjoy being around. Like there are just, there are things that, dramatically improve the quality of your life outside of just riding. But we can attach it to riding as a thing that we're all motivated to do. And so that's half the battle is just because everybody knows what to do to feel better. Everybody knows you got to eat a bunch of vegetables, you got to take care of yourself, you got to move a bunch, you got to exercise. So it's not about knowing better. It's about like feeling better and having something to attach it too so that we can do the things that we know we should do and you know riding can be that so if it's like hey i want to not feel like crap when i ride and that's going to be the thing i keep at the front of my mind to keep me you know gaining momentum and going and keeping up this slow progress over time to just keep making those deposits to your health bank account all of a sudden you wake up months and years later and it's just like my entire life is different not just my riding and that's really, uh, that's really the thing that matters is because it's, um, that's huge. that's huge. And nobody who has ever done that has ever been like, I wish I didn't do that. So, uh, it's a great idea. And specifically for like, you know, the Freddie
2: any is listening or, or watching this. Um, I know Dave and I feel the same way. Like motorcycles have been the biggest, um, source of therapy that, yeah, it's, it's a very real thing, um. Not only just for the mental side, but like you're saying, Matt, like the physical side, everything. Like getting on a motorcycle and then trying to get progressively better at motorcycles has kind of made me force me into trying to get progressively better at life and, and yeah. being a person. Yeah.
0: So Yeah, there's there is a lot in that little sentence there, Alex. Yeah, it's the the connection between motorcyclists and veterans is pretty profound. It's it's yeah, we should do like a whole like veteran episode. Where we talk about a lot of these issues. Because, I know. the perfect person course. to talk about this with. Right on. Who?
2: Uh Dave. Buddy of mine, Dave. Yeah. There's another, another Dave. Dave. Another Dave. There's just not enough of us.
0: <laughs> we need. Only there are more Daves. Well, Matt, how can people find you?
1: Uh, well, like you mentioned, I'm on Instagram at Matt Tolstoy. So it's M A T T T O L S T O Y. It's all one word, no underscores or anything like that. Just at Matt Tolstoy. Um, like you said there's my stuff there my contact info is there uh matthewtolsoy.com is my website that'll also have ways that if you wanted to just first of all read more about what i do but then there's also you know a contact form that'll have uh your ability to reach out and yeah for anybody listening who just you know you have questions about this stuff or whatever and you just want to like i'm always happy to chat about this thing so just drop me a message or shoot me a dm or something Um, you know, we need to be having more of these conversations and writers need help and stuff like that. So feel free to reach out on either of those, the website or Instagram. And uh, yeah, we'd
0: love to talk to you. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we will see you next time on uh, The Breaking Zone. Ciao, everyone. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya.